start out by getting us into the Word because we're going to uh, jump away. We're not going to have a regular sermon like we would normally have. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, you're going to want to have one here at the beginning. Uh, we're going to cruise through some stuff, uh, so you want to make sure that, that you can see this. Uh, since Jagger's already up getting one, if you need a Bible, just hold your hand up. Mr. Dan and Jagger can, can make sure that you are set. Um, I want to strongly encourage you to have your own Bible, to bring it to church with you, something that you can use, that you can wear out, that you can make notes in. <clears throat> Many of you have electronic apps and devices. Take advantage of those note-taking uh, uh, features in the apps that you're using. Uh, if, you're, if you're using an electronic device, by the way, uh, the Wi-Fi network and password for the church are in your program. You can uh, use that to be able to get some access. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but you want to have a Bible of your own. You don't want to be borrowing someone else's. You don't want to just be using the Bible at church. You want to be in it. If you're going to know the Father, then you've got to spend time with Him. He's written you a love letter, and He wants you to pour over it and put it into your heart. If you don't have one, take one of ours. That's what they're here for. They don't do anybody any good sitting on a shelf. You want to have one. So please, by all means, take these. Hopefully everybody's got one at this point. We're going to turn to Leviticus. Where in Leviticus, you ask? All of Leviticus. Fear not, I'm not going to preach through the whole book, but I'd like us to start in Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus being the third book of the Bible. We're going to cruise through this. And today, mostly, I want you to just see it. Today is a, is a summary, so we've returned uh, for this quick review to the overview we did at the very beginning of this back last, last January and February when we started this series, this Be Mine series, and we've been working through this idea that God has called His people to holiness because we belong to Him. That's why the series is called Be Mine, and we've used as our theme verse which summarizes the content of the book, Leviticus 20.26. You can see it on the wall behind us. We've been reading it together as a regular habit. Let's start with that today. We'll start with the reference, then the verse, and the reference again, so we get it into your mind. Here we go. Leviticus 20.26. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Leviticus 20.26. This is in a nutshell what the entire book of Leviticus is about. The reason I'm having you turn there is because I want you to just see that it really is what we, what we believe it is. In the first chapter, go ahead and touch it if you don't have a touchscreen device, you're looking at a book. Okay, we see chapter 1, we deal with burnt offerings. Chapter 2, grain offerings. Chapter 3, fellowship offerings. Chapter 4, sin offerings. As we go through the first seven chapters here, we are dealing with the, the offerings, the sacrifices that God is prescribing for the children of Israel to atone for sin, to bring them into fellowship with God, to atone for specific breaking of the law, as well as unintentional breaking of the law. So as God is dealing with all of this stuff, He gives them a picture of the hideous nature of sin that sin costs life without the shedding of blood Hebrews tells us there is no forgiveness of sin 
God gives a picture of this. Sin brings death. So these innocent animals die in the place of the sinner so that we would realize the cost, the price of it. In chapter 8, we see God set aside uh, a, a tribe of people. He's already set them aside. Here he ordains Aaron and his sons as priests. Those who would... Uh, draw a clear line between the common, the mundane, and the sacred, that which is set apart to God. It's an interesting dynamic for both Israel and for us because God called His people to be His people at all times, not just during acts of worship, not just when they would come to the tabernacle, for us not just on Sunday mornings, but at all times. And His law, as we see through this book, continues to build on that idea, even to the point of setting up a calendar for them to interrupt their lives, to command them to stop working one day a week. That's weird for us. Not just to go on vacations, but to set this time aside for God. To remind His people, you don't do this yourself. Your strength isn't what provides for your needs. I am. In, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapters 9 and 10, we see the ministry of the priests begin to take place. In chapter 9, the priests start to uh, minister on behalf of the people before God. And the craziest thing happens, God actually lights the fire on the altar. Supernatural fire from God, not from the man, not from the priests, not from Moses, but supernatural fire from God lights the altar. And it's kept burning. But in chapter 10, two sons of Aaron decide they're going to do it their way instead of God's way. They're not paying attention to the commands that God had given them. Instead, they're just going to bring it. Hey, we're priests, right? We can do what we want. But God says, not so. And that same supernatural fire that lit the altar comes out from the altar and strikes both of them dead. God takes our worship and the purity of it very seriously. We see regulations beginning in chapter 11 dealing with things that are clean and unclean and, and how to process them, how to deal with the, the sin that so scars humanity. And God uses the picture of infectious diseases and all unclean things to represent sin, to teach his people. And for several chapters, he goes on dealing with those issues. In chapter 16, if you haven't already turned, the, turned with me, turn to chapter 16. In chapter 16, we see the Day of Atonement established. In Hebrew, this is Yom Kippur. When you see this on your calendars, many of your calendars have Yom Kippur on there. It's one of the high Jewish holidays. Bear this in mind. Every time you see it, that's this chapter. That's Leviticus 16. This is God commanding a day to be set aside as holy to Him. This is the only time, the only day of the year that anyone can enter the most holy place in the tabernacle where God's glory would manifest itself over the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest, not any priest, not any Levite, not some priest, only the high priest could enter, and only on this day. In fact, the tradition 
became later on where they would tie a, a rope to the high priest's foot to his ankle. So that should he enter with sin, with the wrong attitude, and be stricken dead before the altar, or before the, the uh, Shekinah glory of God, that they could pull him out because nobody could go in. So they would, they would establish this later on as a tradition. The, the priest, when he would enter the most holy place, had to first sacrifice to make atonement for his own sin. He had to get right before he could lead the people into rightness. This is only one example of why at real life we believe strongly that those who are in leadership, those who teach, those who lead worship should be held to a higher standard than other regular members of the church. If you are standing before other people to lead, then you need to get yourself right first. Husbands, fathers, God has called you to such a role as a priest, so to speak, in your family. Before you can lead your family, you have to get yourself right with God. The people have the responsibility to follow and they have to be right. But before the priest could offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people, he had to offer the sacrifice on his own behalf. He had to repent. Then he would offer the sacrifice for the tabernacle and for the sins of the people that they may have committed without even realizing it. The general uncleanness that just happens as we walk through this landfill of the world. The book continues, <coughs> excuse me, and we see various laws come up in 17 and following as the eating of blood is forbidden and sexual ethics are established and how to deal with the poor comes up. And then we get, as we've seen, <coughs> excuse me, recently, specific commands in chapters 26 and 27 as God reminds his people that there is a price for the covenant. If you are mine, you have to walk with me. You have to be set apart for me. And if you will obey what I have told you, then life and prosperity will follow you because I will bless you. This is what he tells Israel. That's not a promise for us specifically. But the principle behind it, as we see in the principle with all these laws, continues for all who belong to God. If you want the blessings of God, then you need to follow the commands of God. If you choose not to obey what He tells us, why would you expect to get the blessings that come with obedience? If you leave His side, you leave His safety. Choose to sin, what? Choose to suffer. Leviticus 26 and 27 points that out. 27 specifically reminds Israel that worship has a value. Worship is specifically in its nature ascribing value. If you say that God is the Lord, then that needs to show up in your calendar, in your wallet and your budget, in your priorities. That's what chapter 27 is about. All of this book reminds us that if we belong to God, there is a special privilege that goes along with that, but there's also special expectations 
Those who belong to God are to be different from the world. Our core reality today is that all that belongs to God is holy because it belongs to God. All that belongs to God is holy because it belongs to God. Now, you have an outline in your program. I'm going to cruise through this because this isn't the point of the sermon. But I know that if I don't give you something to write, some of you are going to be upset with me. So I, I see you smiling, Kim, because you know you're going to be upset with me if I don't give you something to write. So here we go. This is specifically the same outline that we had when we first started Leviticus. We're just reviewing so for some of you who were not here, this will be new. For some of you, it may be familiar. Here we go. We're going to review the five W's of Leviticus. First, the who. Who is involved in Leviticus? Who wrote it? Who's in it? It's written by Moses. The book of Leviticus, as the rest of the Torah, uh, is written by Moses. There are some folks who debate that. Uh, tradition holds to it. The tradition of Israel hold to it. Uh, we hold to that as well. The best evidence seems to be that it's written by Moses. The main characters in the book of Leviticus are Moses himself, okay, Aaron and the priests. The main characters are Moses, Aaron and the priests, God's people at large, the whole nation of Israel, and most importantly, who do you think? God himself, absolutely right. Leviticus is written by Moses. The main characters are Moses, Aaron and the priests, God's people at large, and most importantly, God himself. The what of Leviticus? Leviticus is mainly a law book. We've talked about the fact that there are three types of laws. The ceremonial, those having to do with uh, what theologians would call the cult, the worship aspects of it. The civil law governing Israel as a theocracy directly ruled by God. And the spiritual or moral laws that predate the law uh, and are uh, they are innate to God's character and they apply to everyone at all times whether you're uh, part of God's people or not but Leviticus is mainly a law book with also some historical narrative it's a law book with some historical narrative in other words it tells the story of the history of Israel in, in part of this book it gives procedures and detailed instructions of how to do life as the people of God. The book of Leviticus gives procedures and detailed instructions about how to do life as the people of God. This is what he's giving it to them for. You are mine. Because you are mine, you are set apart. You are different. You are a peculiar people. The rest of the world is going to think you're weird. I'm telling you, you are holy. And here's how you're going to show that. I'm going to give you instructions and procedures on how you can display my heart and character to the world around you. And it will set you apart. You will look different. You will not be just like everyone else. The when of Leviticus. Leviticus takes place after the Exodus and before the 40 years of wandering. So earlier as we were celebrating uh, the communion, the Lord's Supper, we were remembering the Passover celebration that celebrated the Exodus. Okay, So from the time that, that Israel left Egypt until the time of the cross, they celebrated Passover. 
Israel continues to celebrate the Passover. Jesus then said, look, I am the Passover. And so we celebrate him in this. This takes place after they got out of Egypt, before they uh, irritate the heck out of God and end up wandering for 40 years in the desert to, to get their minds right. It's a little attitude adjustment, a little time out. Where? Where is this taking place? This is in the Sinai Desert, S-I-N-A-I, in the Sinai Desert. One S, it's not dessert. That was the manna. Uh, it's in the Sinai Desert. It's near Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, so to speak. It's the same place that the Ten Commandments were given. The same place that the golden calf was made. So when you see Charlton Heston doing his thing, that's the picture you want to have in your mind here at the foot of the mountain before they get into the promised land, before they get out in the desert, they're here receiving the law. All right. I'll give you just a moment because I see folks are still writing. We talked about the who, the what, the when, the where. Let's talk about the why. The most dangerous word in our language. Why? Question we need to ask ourselves about everything that we are doing. Why am I doing this? Why does this matter to me? Leviticus is given for the reasons of, well, we'll just go through it. To perceive, to present, to protest, to protect, to provide, and to point. First, to perceive God's holiness and our unholiness. Leviticus is given so that the people of God would be able to perceive God's holiness and our unholiness. <clears throat> That's the point of the law. Secondly, it's given to present a people to himself. God says, you are mine. You are set apart to me. Here's how this looks. So God, through the specific laws that he gives, through the sacrifices and offerings that, that he gives for their help and healing, he is presenting to himself a people. Third, Leviticus is given to protect from disease and the result of sin. To protect from disease and the result of sin. It's not primarily concerned with hygiene. Sometimes we get confused and think it is. It's not primarily concerned with diet. Sometimes we think that the, the kosher element has to do with our nutrition. Not so. However, there are benefits from it. And as God is protecting His people from themselves, He is protecting His people from sinfulness. In the process, He also protects them from disease and the results that come from doing our thing instead of His. If they had been like the nations around them, they would have faced the diseases and illnesses of the people around them. God, by setting them apart, separates them from the results of following the wrong path. Next, Leviticus is, is given to the people of Israel to provide for the failings of his people. The law is given to provide for the failings of his people. God knows that sin is present. It was present before the law was given. Before there was a law, we were in our hearts and by our nature lawbreakers. We didn't even have a law yet, and we were already there. God provides this so that in seeing his nature and character through the law, 
and in receiving the means of atonement through the law that he would be able to provide a means for his people to get right with him, that he could have the relationship with them he had always wanted. The great lover, even in the law, and specifically in the law, is pursuing his unfaithful beloved. We now receive the benefits of the grace of God because Jesus Christ, in his, his actions, his teachings, and most specifically through his death on the cross in our place, as our sacrifice of atonement, fulfilled the law. He did what the law was not capable of doing, nor did it intend to do. Lastly, Leviticus and the law was given to point forward to Christ. The law was given to point forward to Christ. We are told that all of this is given specifically to teach us. Romans 15, 4, all that was written in the past was given for our instruction, for our benefit later on. Why does this matter to us? For that reason. It matters to us because everything that happened to Israel happened that we might learn from it, that we might be able to relate to God through it. I'm not going to have you turn to, to Romans 15.4, but I would like for you to take a look at, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but I would for, like for you to take a look at 1 Peter 2.9 in your program. You can turn there in your scripture. It's printed for you in your program. Oh, what the heck, I love the sound of pages turning. Let's go ahead and turn there. <clears throat> Leviticus is at the beginning of the book. Peter's letters are at the back. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. If you're in Hebrews and James, go a couple pages more. We're going to do this a little backwards. I want you to start in chapter 2, and we'll move back to chapter 1. Why does all this matter for us? Because the same things that God tells His people then in principle apply to His people now in principle. The details of the law, depending on the type of law, were for a time. They were for a setting. They were for a people. And we're not those things. But the principles behind them reflect the character of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 9, we're going to look, I have verse 9 written down for you. We're going to look at 9 and 10 specifically. Peter writes, But you, Christians, you, church, who he's writing to. He might as well put in here, you, real life, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once, just as God said to Israel, now Peter says this to the church, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Back up to chapter 1. <clears throat> Starting with verse 14. As obedient children, you belong to God, you're His children. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, 
Because I am holy. Why does it matter for us? Because holiness matters for us. God is holy, and He has called His people to be holy. You cannot, mark this now, you cannot belong to God and not be holy. You can't. Belonging to God makes you holy. Everything that belongs to God, by His touching it, is holy. It's set apart for Him. And if we belong to God, then we become, in practice, over time, what we are by His decree and declaration because we belong to Him. As we set ourselves apart by our choices and action, we become more and more like the one we belong to, who has already made us holy. All right. Now, having said that, I want to stop. I want to not mess with the microphone. And I want to read you a story. It's my hope today that this story will help us get the picture of what the book of Leviticus is all about. So we're done with the sermon time. I want to read you a story about a prince. There once was a prince who forgot who he was. He was, in truth, the son of the one true king. However, at a particularly foolish and rebellious time in his life, the prince made the particularly foolish and rebellious decision to turn away from his father, breaking the king's heart. The prince, bent on his own independence, left the king's presence, where he felt restricted by the king's rules and pressured by the expectations of royal life. Life in the palace is too difficult, he told himself. Oh, it is warm and safe enough and beautiful enough. My father has certainly provided for everyone who belongs to him, but I feel restricted by his rules and pressured by the expectations of royal life. I cannot live up to it. It is too great a burden. I want to be free, to be free to do what I want to do. Peasants never have to concern themselves with the things my father expects of me. They seem so happy and carefree. I'm tired of having to be a prince all the time. The king, deeply wounded by the prince's desire to leave, was barely able to maintain his regal bearing as he addressed his precious son. My precious son, said the king with a heavy sadness, the life you are choosing is not the way of a prince. If it is freedom you seek, you can never be freer than you are at my side. My kingdom is great and good. It is prosperous and filled with delight. If you remain, you will reign with me. Because you are mine, all that I have is yours. You are safe, protected, and free from the bondage and difficulties that others may face. Here with me, <coughs> excuse me, here with me is joy and peace and hope. All the things a, priest, a prince must sacrifice are only those things that would harm you and keep you from fully, fully enjoying the beauty of life in my kingdom. Nonetheless, the king conceded with a downcast look quite ill-fitted to his majesty. 
If you insist on going your own way, I will not keep you from it. I have given you many things, instructed you in the kingdom life, provided for your needs, and have loved you with my whole heart. Here at my side you have lacked no worthwhile thing. As you go, do not forget the kingdom life you have learned from me, for it is the way of wisdom. The face of the king bore an overwhelming sorrow, but the prince's mind was too preoccupied with thoughts of his anticipated freedom to notice. As the prince turned to go, he heard his father say, Wherever you go, however far from my side, you will always be my son. At first the prince felt as if a great weight had been lifted from his back. No longer would he carry the burden of being a prince. No longer would he worry about what the king would think. He could live any way he should choose, with no one telling him how to act, where to go, or what to say. Not wanting to stand out as different, the prince made a point of dressing, speaking, and acting just like everyone else. No one will ever know that I am the king's son, he thought to himself with great satisfaction. I will be just like everyone else, and I will be just as free as they are. The just-like-everyone-else prince was thrilled with his newfound life outside the palace. He began to explore the ways of the world with no burdens, and he put out of his mind the occasional thoughts of kingdom life. That is not who I am anymore, he reasoned. I am free now, and thinking back to that life only makes me feel guilty. Besides, surely even my father would understand. If he really loves me, he would want me to be happy. This is how the prince quieted his heart whenever he would remember his father and begin to feel regret over leaving. Whenever the prince had reason to speak of his father, he was sure to refer to him as the king, as if he had no more connection to him than anyone else. As is often the case with kings and other rulers, the people of the land who did not know the king personally would occasionally speak of him disdainfully or accuse him of injustice or oppression. The just-like-everyone-else prince knew full well that the king was just and good. But seeking to be just like everyone else, he never spoke up in in the king's defense. In the beginning, he smiled or chuckled uncomfortably so as not to reveal his identity as a child of the king. As he grew used to such talk, he laughed along and began to join in the foolishness, even mocking the king himself. Over time... The prince had heard and spoken such things so often that he began to believe them. He forgot how noble noble and kind the one true king really was. And the forgetful prince began to resent the king, whom he no longer thought of as his own loving father, for the lies his heart had begun to believe. The longer the prince turned peasant lived just like everyone else, the less he resembled his father. He no longer looked or thought like royalty. He had once needed to make a point of dressing, speaking, and acting just like everyone else, but now it had become a way of life, his way of life. He thought of himself only as a peasant, and life in the palace seemed to be no more than a story he had heard as a child. Forgetting his identity as a child of the king, he now saw himself as a friend of the world. The life of a peasant is not like the life of a prince. While there is no burden of royal expectation, there is also no joy of royal living. 
After much time had passed, the prince began to realize that peasant life was hard. His needs were no longer provided for in the way they had been in the palace. He had only what his own hard work could earn. When his own hard work was not enough, he was forced to borrow or steal. The laughter and merrymaking that had once seemed so important no longer satisfied him. Nor could they drive away the emptiness and drudgery of his peasant life. Perhaps someone who had known no other life might expect nothing better. But this one who had long forgotten his life in the palace yearned for something more. The king never stopped longing for his wayward son to return to him. One day, a messenger of the king encountered a peasant who seemed strikingly familiar. Though the peasant stooped with the weight of poverty and shame, the messenger recognized him as the long-lost prince, the child of the king. Speaking kindly and directly as one should with those who are burdened, the messenger reminded the just-like-everyone-else prince of his true identity and shared the good news that the king longed for him to return. Place your hope and trust in the mercy of the king, said the messenger, for you belong to him, and he loves you as his precious child. The prince, still burdened with shame, turned to run away, but the messenger caught him by the arm. I'm not who you think I am, snapped the guilt-ridden prince. I stopped being that person a long time ago. I turned away from the king and the kingdom life. There's no longer any place for me there. Even if the king were still my father, I would not be able to live a royal life. The life of a prince was difficult even then, and now this peasant life is all I know. My prince, the king's messenger said with the boldness of truth, you are a child of the one true king. You may have forgotten, but your father is not. You may have wandered far from your home in the way of royalty, but the king does not reject his own. This peasant life can never be for you. The one true king is also your one true father. You are not made to be a friend of the world. In that moment, while still bent with the weight of shame and covered with the filth of the world, the prince heard the echo of a memory deep in the back of his mind. It was a voice, a gentle, noble, familiar voice. He remembered the voice of the king, yes, even his father. Through the fog of pain, regret, and forgetfulness, the son of the king remembered. He heard his own royal father say, Wherever you go, however far from my side, you will always be my son. <clears throat> the tears that streamed his face were now interrupted by a growing smile of realization. My father has not changed, the prince marveled aloud, no longer caring what anyone heard or thought. He is not merely the king. He is my father. Though I walked away, he has not. These dirty clothes and this peasant life do not change who I really am. Wherever I have gone, however far from his side, I am and have always been a child of the king. As thoughts of the king's love warmed the heart of the prince, he stood straighter. He no longer felt as if he were just like everyone else. How could he be? He belonged to the one true king. Though his attitude, thoughts, appearance, and actions had changed, his true identity had not. 
Even living as a peasant, he remained a prince. Now it was time to act like a prince. The no longer like everyone else prince did just as the messenger had advised and placed his hope and trust in the mercy of the king. And just as the messenger had said, the king did not reject the prince because the prince belonged to him and the king loved him as his precious child. The king welcomed his son, dirty and tattered as he was, with a tearful embrace that seemed to swallow up any shadow of guilt or pain or regret like the ocean swallows a tear. In that moment, the prince completely forgot that he still looked like a peasant. Nothing mattered but the embrace of his father. This would be a happy end to our story if indeed it were the end. However, happily ever after is not such an easy thing. Upon returning to his father, the king, the prince was so gripped with the excitement of being forgiven and the joy of being restored that he thought nothing of the burdens of royalty. His senses seemed particularly aroused to every detail of kingdom life, and every breath was filled with a mixture of anticipation and appreciation. <clears throat> Everyday things that he once considered ordinary, even bothersome, now carried a grand, <clears throat> excuse me, a grand sense of adventure and purpose. He was the king's son. Everything the prince did, he now understood to be the king's work, for he represented the king in everything he did. But time passed as it always does, and the shine of the prince's forgiveness and restoration grew duller with its passing. The prince began to notice that he still sometimes acted like a peasant. Even though he was the king's son, he had forgotten how to live in a way befitting royalty. In the time when he was just like everyone else, he had developed habits of thinking and acting just like everyone else. Now it seemed impossible, even after being restored, to live up to the high calling of kingdom life. The prince had forgotten how to be a prince. Worry began to overtake him. How can I be a prince? I keep acting like I do not belong to my father. Maybe I really do not. Surely my father is disappointed in me. Surely he does not want someone like me as his child. These thoughts would not leave the prince alone. And on many occasions he considered leaving the palace once again to return to life as a peasant, just like everyone else. He was certain that he deserved no better life. It was in the middle of such dark and lonely thoughts that the one true king took hold of his forgetful son. Placing majestic hands on his son's trembling shoulders, the king looked into the prince's eyes and saw the shame and fear in them. My precious son, queried the king, why is your heart so heavy? Why are your, eye, why are your eyes filled with shame and fear? These things are not suited to one so deeply loved. Oh, Father, if I can even call you Father, how can I be a prince, he lamented. I so often fail to act like your child. I think I have forgotten how to live the kingdom life. I do not deserve to live with you as your son. <clears throat> My child, the king responded in a gentle but stern voice. 
Do you think you became my child because you somehow deserved it? The king spoke in a manner somewhere between a reprimand and a chuckle. You do not live with me as my son because you deserve it. Rather, you deserve to live with me because you are my son. You are set apart because you belong to me. Because you are mine, you can never be just like everyone else. The prince was confused. But why don't I act like a prince? Why don't I feel like a prince? I know that I disappoint you, but I keep failing. It does break my heart to see you forget who you are, my son, and to whom you belong. It is a sad and painful truth that when you lived as a friend of the world, you learned to think and act just like everyone else. And those habits can cause you to forget the kingdom life I have taught you. However, as you walk with me, you will remember the way of wisdom and the kingdom life that is your destiny. You are already my child. You are already my child and nothing will ever change that. You are not like everyone else because you are mine. Every time you obey me and live according to my ways, you set yourself apart as mine and you grow stronger in the kingdom life. You will stumble many times before your peasant habits die. But who you are remains the same. You are a prince, a child of the king. You are now and forever mine. <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the prince took the king's words to heart and made them the foundation of his hope. He would indeed stumble many times, but in his heart and mind, the prince set himself apart to his father. The prince hated his failures, but he refused to be defined by them. He would never again live just like everyone else, for he belonged to his father, the one true king. And so the prince lived to become more and more like the king, imperfectly but increasingly ever after. All that belongs to God is holy because it belongs to God. In other words, and I hope this is what you get from this story, we do not belong to God because we are holy. Rather, we are holy because we belong to God. Leviticus 20 verse 8 says, Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. As we prepare to leave from this place and go into the rest of this world, we are not like everyone else. May we not live like everyone else. We are children of the one true King. We have a choice. We can hide. We can pretend. We can live like peasants. And we will be just as free as they are. Which is to say we will be slaves. We will be poor. We will be bound. 
or we can live like the children of the King that we are in Christ. The price of our redemption already paid. And we can be holy because He is holy. Keep my decrees and follow them. I, the, I am the Lord who makes you holy. There are two parts we need to remember. It's the Lord who makes us holy. It's not that we are already holy and so He chose us because we're better somehow. That's the devil's lie. But it isn't that we lose that position because of our unholiness. By belonging to Him, we are set apart to Him. It's easy for us to continue to act like the world. That's what we're used to. We've been called to keep His decrees and follow them because we are His. Because we are His, we have the kingdom life. We've been taught the way of wisdom. We have the job now of renewing our mind, walking closely to the Father. And as we do, those peasant ways will die. And we will begin to look more and more like the Father. Imperfectly, but increasingly ever after. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we thank you that you have made us holy. That you yourself have chosen us to be yours. That you have done everything needed for our holiness in Christ. We need only to remember that we belong to you and to walk with you. Remind us when we fail of who we really are and to whom we really belong. Let us never despair and give up and think that you no longer want us as your child. Teach us to get up, to take off our peasant clothes, to walk with our Father. Lord, I pray that as we, as we leave this sanctuary today, this place of safety, this place where we meet with you and with your people, and we go out into the world, that we would not live as friends of the world, but as children of the one true King. That we would not seek to be like everyone else that we would not tolerate that thinking in ourselves that, that we would take pride not unholy fleshly pride but a holy pride in who our father is Lord we've sung worshipful songs to you today May we give you more than a song. May we give you a life song. We pray this in Christ's name.